If you have a Bible with you, you can turn it to the book of Romans. We're smack in the middle of our series in Paul's letter to the Romans. And we're talking through his great description of the unbelievable things that God has done in and through Jesus. And so we're going to look at that again this morning. And we're going to start in Romans chapter 5. And uh, Romans chapter 5, I'll start reading at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In Romans chapter 5, Paul begins to transition. And he begins to write about what you might call the Christian life. So how now do we live in light of what God has done through Jesus? And so Paul starts with that important literary word, therefore. And so I was always taught in junior high and high school in literature classes, which I never paid attention to, that whenever you see the word therefore, have you heard this before? You always have to ask, what is it there for? Right? So there you go. That's your takeaway point for, for this morning. So whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it therefore? So Paul, why does he start this with therefore? Well, what he's going to do is everything he's going to say is going to hinge on what he has already said. Right? So this story of the gospel through Jesus is the means by which we're going to understand how to live the Christian life. Now you know that this is a huge deal. Uh, for, for me. It's a huge deal in Scripture. It's a huge deal for our church. I think it's one of the things that, that is unique about what we're doing here in Bethlehem is that for us, the Gospel is not just the means by which you come to faith in Christ. It is the means also by which we live for Christ. We don't dispose the Gospel when we choose to follow Jesus. It's not our ticket into the party. It's a, it's a new story for our life, and it changes everything about us. Now, it takes our life for that change to fully take place. We have to soak in it, right? It's like soaking in a long tub, and, 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 it, and over time, the changes begin to happen in us. But Paul wants us to know right from the first word that anything he's going to say about how we now should live is totally immersed in what God has done through Jesus. So, for the sake of repetition... Let's say the story again. Right? The problem is not that God has rejected man, 
but that man has rejected God. We learned that in Romans chapter 1 at the end. And the rejection of God by man has led to all kinds of sin. And the cycle spins so fast, and we are caught up in all of these sins. And then we are dealt with the reality that the end of our sin is the wrath of God. That the holiness of God demands action against unholiness. That when God says that He is light and in Him there can be no darkness, it's not just sort of a, a cutesy analogy, it's reality. That where He is, nothing unholy can be. And so there's this massive chasm, there's this complete separation, and there's no means by which, in human form, we can do anything about it. And so then we turn and say, well, let's look at the character of the judge, right? And what we found in the character of God in Romans chapter 2 is that God is not a punitive judge. He's not looking to sentence people to death. He's actually a judge who's characterized by kindness and patience and and, and withholding judgment for a long time. Remember Peter would write in 2 Peter that God desires that no one would perish, but that all might come to faith. And then we learned in Romans chapter 4 that faith is the key. It's the means of personal access to this story. That God just doesn't force us into something because that wouldn't be genuine. But that faith is the means by which we choose into this great thing that God has done. And Abraham was our example. And then we went back to the end of chapter 3 again and we saw that in this courtroom scene, somehow through the work of Jesus and, and the kind character of this judge, we've been declared not guilty. So now, therefore, Paul wants to begin talking to us about how we should live. And chapter 5 all the way through chapter 8 is going to be an unveiling of how this gospel should affect how we live and who we are. It's, It's going to be nothing about what we need to do to become better people. It's going to be everything about what God wants to do to transform us to live more into his image, right? Therefore, so there's three things that that Paul wants to say should characterize our lives, right? The first is peace, right? Peace with God. Then there's this big middle section about hope, hope for the glory of God, and then it ends with reconciliation with God. So those who have, have received in faith what Christ has done for us. These three things are are what sort of define us in this life, that we now have peace with God and that we're reconciled with God. Now, what's interesting is that those two ideas are very similar, aren't they? So that we have peace with God and that we're reconciled with God. So someone who you're reconciled with, you have peace with, right? And so what happens, there's this really interesting literary formation here. It's not a straight, what what, uh, literary people would call chiastic structure, but in essence it is. Now, you're saying, oh my goodness, what is that? And literally, I remember I didn't listen in literature class. So I, here's how I understand what that is. Sandwiches. I love sandwiches. I don't know anything about literature, but I love sandwiches. So yesterday, uh, uh, we decided that we were going to get um, sandwiches from Primo's Hoagie Shop in Easton. We ordered these sandwiches, Okay. And with the exception of Rachel, because she needs to eat gluten-free, uh, so hers looked different, Jackson and, and Tyler's and mine sandwich looked very similar, right? The bread and the roll were identical, but what distinguished them was what was inside, right? So my boys 
love Italian hoagies, but they do not like the spicy capicola. For me, without the spicy capicola, there is no Italian hoagie. So there's this distinguishing thing that has to happen there. So these sandwiches all come and they look very similar, but what makes them what they are is what's inside. And trust me, if you're ever at my house and one of them bites into a spicy meat, you'll know that it's not the right one, right? This is the literary feature that's happening here. So peace with God and and reconciliation are the two pieces of bread, right? And the hunk of the sandwich, the thing that defines it, the meat, is what's in the middle. And in this situation, it's hope. And in these literary situations, what we find is that the main thing that the author wants to convey is the meat in the middle, right? not saying that peace with God and reconciliation aren't big ideas, but he's talked a lot about them in the end of Romans chapter 3. Remember we had that word propitiation, that God's wrath has been satisfied. Now what Paul wants to talk about is really what that means for our life is we can define that in one word. Hope. Hope. Now many people have said this about hope, that it is the weakest of all the virtues. And so society looks on something like hope as sort of people holding onto a thread and dangling there. But we look at hope in a much different way. Though it may seem like that, that thread is as secure as anything we've ever known. Though it may seem on the outside like we're holding and dangling onto something that could fall at any moment, we know that that thread, which is much more than a thread, is completely secure. Now, when you live like this in the midst of a broken world, a hopeless world, suddenly the gospel is enlivened, isn't it? We can talk as much as we want about what Jesus did. People have heard that, right? I'm not saying they don't need to hear it. We need to keep saying it. We need people to find Christ. But when we live as people of hope, suddenly everything we say has real merit, has real oomph, and people begin to actually listen rather than just nod. But when we live as people of hope, suddenly what we're talking about when we speak the gospel, people have ears to hear it. Because living in hope is radically different than what happens in society, in Paul's society and in our society. Because hope demands faith in something else outside of ourselves. And no one lives that way. So we need to talk about this a little bit. Three things you want to say about hope, uh, or two things I should actually say. The first is this, right? So Paul says this idea of of glorying in hope. And then in, in classic Paul way, he goes right into talking about stuff that should make us feel hopeless. Uh, Here we go. Through whom, this is verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God and we're like this crescendo. Things are going good. Jesus has done all these things for us and we're hoping in Him, right? This big crescendo. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Wait a minute. That doesn't fit. Why would that come next? There's this great crescendo of everything that Jesus has done for us and the glory of God, and we have peace with our Creator, and we have hoping in Him, and, oh, by the way, glory in your sufferings. I don't like that at all. 
because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Hope will not put us to shame because God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The first thing that we need to come to terms with about hope, and one of the reasons I think that many uh, in the church or many who follow Jesus don't live lives of actual hope, is that hope necessitates living in a world of exile. Hope necessitates living in struggle. Hope necessitates living in difficulty. And Paul goes right to it. And Paul knows everything about this, right? He had this unbelievable encounter with God where Jesus appears to him in the Damascus Road, blinds him, speaks audibly to him, calls him to service. And then all along the way, although God is doing incredible things through Paul, Paul is suffering constantly. Being stoned unto death, being shipwrecked, being in prison, being whipped, being chased by a lion. Paul knows this, that hope only exists with exile. And the people of God knew this too, because in the Old Testament, if you were to do a search of the word hope, what you would find is that it almost always shows up in the most difficult and despairing situations. The book where the word hope shows up the most is Job. In fact, that famous verse that we love to quote from Jeremiah 29, that God knows the plans He has for us, plans to prosper us, prosper us, and plans to give us a hope, happens in a letter written to exiled people. Where God is saying, you're here, but you need to live and, and dive into this culture and live on the thread of hope. Because hope always happens in exile. If life is going swimmingly for you, if everything is perfect, if you have no needs in the life, then you have no hope. Because you're taking care of everything. But if you've come to the place where you've recognized that even if in this current state of affairs things, things seem to be going really well for me, at any moment things could easily derail. Right? Then suddenly you're living in hope. Because what you're saying is that God is faithful, even when it might not look like it. That God is present, even when it might not look like it. That God will do what God intends to do, even if it seems like everything is opposed to it. And that God will accomplish through me what He wants to, even if it's a different way than I would like Him to do it. Hope has to exist in exile. We don't like that, because we'd rather not have suffering. But absent of need, there's no hope. Because we have no need for it. So Paul gives us this this sort of, uh, this phrase that sort of the way he sees hope growing, right? That, That suffering leads to perseverance. And perseverance to character. And character ultimately to hope. Let me say it this way. Paul, I think, is getting at this idea. That when suffering comes, it ultimately leads to perseverance. So we might say, somehow we've been able to deal with a circumstance that if we were absent from it and thought about what might happen to us if that circumstance were true, we would have said about ourselves, we could never do that, right? Has that ever happened to you? Like, for instance, what if you're in the middle of a job now, if you thought about if you happen to lose your job? You thought about it now, you might think, how would I ever withstand that? 
But in the moment, if that happens to you, sometimes you might see yourself being able to handle the situation, right? You're learning, you're seeing perseverance actually happen. Maybe you're, you think about what would happen if I, if I was diagnosed with a disease. How, I couldn't handle that. I would just throw in the towel. But you find out, you talk to people who have been diagnosed with really, really significant diseases that they found perseverance in the midst of that. So Paul's saying sometimes suffering, it builds perseverance, which ultimately can build character, which I would define this way, an understanding of ourselves and the world around us, right? That sort of begins to define how we act. And, and contextually here for what Paul's saying is an understanding of the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of ourselves, that ultimately leads to hope. Well, why does this all lead to hope? Because what we have found out in this process is not that this thing came upon me and I was able in my own power to persevere through it and that I was able to gain character about my own ability or the world's ability that ultimately leads to something. What we've really found is that it's God himself who was the creator and now the sustainer. He's the means by which perseverance has happened in suffering. He's the means by which character is forming within us that ultimately leads us to put our hope more fully in God. Suffering breeds hope. Jesus himself said constantly to his disciples, in this world you're going to experience trouble. And then ultimately in in one of his big speeches before, one of his big sermons before uh, he left the, the world before he was crucified and then later uh, resurrected and ascended to heaven. He talked about the coming struggles in the world. He talked about them as birth pains, right? They're, they're going to get harder and harder as they go along, and they're going to become closer and closer together as they go along. Uh, you know that if, any, if you've gone through a, a birth or if anyone close to you has gone through it. You know what birth pains are like. And Jesus is promising this for us. But in a strange way, what he's also doing is reassuring us, isn't he? That when we see struggle and difficulty, it should immediately turn us to hope. Because we know that the plan that God has is enacted. That will see us through to the end. Does this make sense? Hope exists in the midst of exile. Because the picture of hope is is very much this. It's life in the presence of death. Hope is life in the presence of death. Everything around you says the opposite of what you're expressing. You're pursuing living for Jesus in the midst of the world that says, why would you? Because you've understood something about the creator of this world that has reoriented your priorities and your faith that has structured it on him. And everyone around you is saying the opposite, but you know Truth. Hope is life in the face of death. It's trusting Jesus in the plethora of our sins. Right? Life in the face of death. And, and then hope is this. Hope is, is in someone. And ultimately, it's in Christ here. Hope is in Christ for us. And so Paul gives us this, this very famous verse. And you, you've probably heard these verses I read before. Chapter 5, verse 8. That while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. And it's often a way by which sometimes we've been taught to share our faith, and it's a fantastic way to do it because it's the gospel. But the way in which Paul is using it here is to prove to us the the certainty of our hope. That if Jesus 
saved you when you were a sinner. That is, if Jesus intervened when you were an enemy of God, then you can be certain that he's going to see you through to the end. In other words, he knew what he was buying. I remember several months ago, Rachel sent me out to buy coffee, and that was a huge mistake. Because I don't don't drink coffee. I I know what it smells like, and I know lots of people drink it, and I kind of know what... But I've never, I've never drank it, and I don't drink it, so I know nothing about it. But we've got one of those Keurig machines at home, and so she sent me out to buy it. And so my natural instinct was to get the lowest price thing on the shelf, right? What do I know about what this stuff is? I figure this one's $8 and this one's 5 I'm going with the 5 And I brought it home, and uh, Rach pulled the K-cup out, and you know, there's like three particles in the bottom because it's so cheap. And she put it in and drank it, and it was awful. But this is not the picture of what Jesus does for us. He doesn't come buy the cheap K-cup coffee and then is disgusted with it after he bought it. He knew exactly what he was getting when he purchased us. And he paid the greatest price for us. And so you should be certain that he will see this through to the end. You can be certain of it. Why? Because of the gospel. That while you were still sinners, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. So when we were called by God to come plant a new church in Bethlehem because the statistics showed that the Lehigh Valley was the 12th most unreached urban center in the United States of America, and we're tasked with... How do you choose a name for a church? And there's all kinds of different ways you can go. You can kind of go hipster and trendy and find those cool Greek words and different things like that. And I would, I would be disposed that way because I kind of like that stuff. Or you could kind of name in a generic way, name a church that kind of represents the area you're in, and that's fantastic too. But I couldn't get around this idea of hope because it's central to the gospel. It speaks exactly to what it is that our circumstances necessitate, that our world needs, that this city and this region needs, that Christians need and that people who aren't yet followers of Jesus need, that the gospel can come and radically reorient us to people of hope rather than self-effort, to people of a future rather than just a now, to people of a now rather than just a meager existence, that hope is the essence of what? The gospel lived out means. So Paul wants to explain this just a little bit more. Wants to give us the sort of, he's holding the trump card here. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since now we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, if reconciliation happened while we were the enemies of God, and it happened through the death of the Son, that is the cross enabled reconciliation with God, how much more then shall we be saved through his life? What is the ultimate reason for hope? It's the resurrection, isn't it? It's the fact 
that, that God accepted the sacrifice of Christ, that He vindicated the action of Christ, that the grave was empty early that Sunday morning, that Jesus was, was, is alive, and that He's still alive, that enables us to actually have hope in this Gospel message. Paul would say elsewhere, if everything Jesus did was true, but He never raised from the dead, then everything we're talking about is futile. It doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. You should never follow it. But it's the resurrection that enables us to have hope. And the resurrection is as true today as it was then. The resurrection is not just a historical reality. It is a present reality. Jesus is alive. And enlivening everything He restores. So have hope in Christ. Friends, has your life been characterized by hopelessness in whole or in part? Have your circumstances barricaded you in in such a way that you have relented, given up, thrown your hands in the air, declared hopelessness? Has a diagnosis done that to you? Has a work situation done that to you? Has family strife and conflict done that to you? Has struggle living the life Jesus wanted you to live done that to you? There's one remedy. Take your eyes off of man and turn them to Jesus. When we hope in Christ, all things are possible. When my eyes are on myself, hopelessness is inevitable. When my eyes are on Christ, all things are possible. When I hope in you, or you, or you, hopelessness is inevitable. And when you hope in me, hopelessness is inevitable. When we hope in government, and when we hope in educational systems, and when we hope in structures, and when we hope in church programs, and when we hope in anything other than Christ, the road will end at some point of hopelessness. Because anything that man made is fragile, it's finite, and it's fallen. But Jesus is alive and lives to enliven everything that he restores. So Paul wants to make it make sense to us in this way. Let me read through this last section of, of Romans here. He's going to pull together a comparison of Adam and Jesus. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who is the pattern of one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man... Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act 
resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace has increased even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul wants to now make this make sense to us by comparing Adam and Jesus. So let's think back to the Garden of Eden and and, and God's creation of the world. And remember at the end, God rests and and he's pleased and everything that he's made is good and God has created man and man lives in, in, in perfect harmony with God and everything is as it should be. That's that Hebrew word shalom that Paul has referenced earlier. We once again through Jesus, now finally once more have shalom, peace with God, that everything is as it should be. Let's take a look at this. Paul centering around this idea of one man. The similarities and or mostly the differences between Adam and Jesus. Look at this. The first thing in under Adam is that Paul wants us to understand that in the lineage of Adam is sin. Through Adam comes sin and ultimately leads to the law, which Paul will write, magnifies sin and expands sin. Well, why does he say something like that? Why would God institute something that that magnifies sin? Because remember, we've talked about this. The law is a mirror of self, right? It, It shows us now just how bad the situation is. There are now actually commandments that we break rather than just sort of breaking the themes and understanding of God. But in Jesus, what we find is grace that far surpasses all the sin. In Adam, we understand disobedience. That Adam, in in that moment, Adam and Eve both, of temptation, disobeyed what God had for them. But in Jesus, we find complete and total obedience. Paul would write later in Philippians, obedience even unto death and death on a cross. That Jesus is the obedient one. In Adam, we find judgment, the natural thing that comes out from the holiness of God based on the sinfulness of man, that there must be judgment because of that. But in Jesus, we find a gift. Imagine this, something that we don't deserve. In Adam, we understand that from one man come many sins. From Adam, the can of worms proverbially was opened. Now, I'm not saying that sin became a possibility for us. What I'm saying is that we were born sinful, because of Adam, that that the transaction was seminal and within us, that sin not only hits part of society, but hits all of us. From one man come many sins, but in Jesus, many sins are taken care of by one man. In Jesus, all of these sins are dealt with through the sacrifice of Christ, made efficient by faith. In Adam, we find condemnation, where God is judge acting down, but in Jesus, we find righteousness, and justification. In Adam, in the sinfulness of man, in us, what we find is that the judgment and condemnation of God has to come. But in Jesus, what we find is that the righteousness of Jesus is ours. And we're declared not guilty. In Adam, we find the curse. Remember this in the Garden of Eden, that because of the sinfulness of Adam and Eve, there were curses declared on man and woman. That man would now have to, to labor uh, and toil with the land, 
that the difficulty would come from it, that it wouldn't be natural or easy, and that the, the produce of the land would no longer be guaranteed in the way that it was before, and that the woman would struggle in childbirth, and that the serpent was con- So through Adam comes all of these curses that are on us, but through Jesus come all of the blessings of the covenant, that you'll be my people, that you'll have an inheritance, that God will always provide for you, that the faithfulness of God is guaranteed through Adam was cursed, but through Jesus was blessing. Through Adam came exile. This beautiful place of God that now Adam and Eve were cast out of. And the angels were, were came in to guard the tree of life. Remember the scene? It was cut off, cast out. They were moved east. But through Jesus, we find return to the land. Right? Through Jesus, there is now reconciliation with God. The barriers and the bridges have been removed. That, that curtain in the temple has been shredded, and now there's access back into the presence of God. Do you see what's happening here? Through Adam, there was death. But through Jesus, life. Adam was creation. But through Jesus, there is new creation. We can look to Eden as this magical moment in history. But friends, you don't just have to look. In Jesus is a return to the Edenic possibilities of God's creation. Everything that was accessible there is now accessible to us, but only in Christ. Because it's the obedience of Christ, not the obedience of me. It's the righteousness of Jesus, not the righteousness of me. So in so much as I've separated myself from Jesus, none of this is possible. But in Christ, everything that was ours, rightfully so, as sons and daughters of Adam, is now ours as the bride of Jesus, sons and daughters of God Himself. Do you understand what has happened here? Hope is possible because of this. Hope is about life in the face of death. Hope is the enlivened life. Jesus says it this way. It's eternal life. Now we've thought about that in, in length. right? And rightfully so. We thought about that. We're going to live forever. Um, and that, that eternity is going to have. And, and, and fair enough and good and right. But Jesus is thinking about it more, more robustly than that. Right? Jesus says that eternal life is not just a future reality, it's a now reality. And that eternal life is not just a wide reality, it's a deep reality. Look at verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, read it with me, reign in life. That is a now proposition, friends. We don't just have to wait for that someday and hope things might get better. Now you can reign in life. Paul wants to remind you that it doesn't disassociate us with brokenness and struggle and despair and circumstances, but you can reign in life now because hope is not just this thing you're hanging on to. It's enlivening, enlivening you and me now. The life that God has made possible is for us now just as much as it is for us in the future. Friends, so many of us 
have bought into the half-truth of eternal life as living with Jesus forever. That's good and right, and I hold on to it, and I love it, and I can't wait for it. But I want to tell you the other part of the equation is just as true now, that there is life for you now. We don't have to live in the dark corners just waiting for someday. There's life now. There's grace now. There's mercy now. There's hope now that emboldens us and makes possible for us to face the circumstances that are aware. Friends, so many people around us have heard people come and talk about Jesus in this very factual, logical way. And quite frankly, I don't know why anyone would respond to someone who gives a message that says, one day, some of this might be possible for you. Jesus never talked like that. He assured them of the one day future certainty possible. But he said, there's something for you now. And everyone I meet in this world around me needs it now. I need it now. We can't live in circumstances of hopelessness. Why do we continue to do this? We don't have to. The enlivening reality of Jesus is for us now. It certainly is for us then and for the long expanse of eternity. But you can't tell me that it isn't now because then it's not eternal, is it? It's not infinite if it hasn't already started. And this richness of life is for us now. Jesus would say it this way in another place. I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. This is not some health and wealth sermon about praying for all the good things and Jesus is going to give them to you. Not what I'm talking about. But it is a very real buoying reality in the brokenness of our life. Right? Tomorrow, I'm still going to have to shovel snow. Right? It's still going to be not fun. So Life is still not going to always go the way we might have wanted it to. But a reorienting of our reality changes how we process the world around us. And now, suddenly, everything that we're talking about, either me every Sunday morning or us between each other or to our friends, has real meaning because you're actually living what you're speaking about. Life is now. If you believe the gospel, then there is a greater life for you now. Are you hopeless? It is so easy to be a Christian with a hope that is contained for the future. My pastoral urge to you this morning is to take the lid off of it and let it out now. You might say, well, how do I do that? How do I have hope now? My life, everything is caving in around me. Um, I'm struggling financially. I'm struggling in relationships. I'm struggling spiritually. How do you do that? What did Paul say in verse 17? It's the key. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more Will those who receive, you have not because you do not receive, right? Faith is still the means of personal access to the goodness of God. You can have faith for someday and receive someday what God has promised. You can also have faith for today and receive the fullness of life that God has promised. 
Once again, I need to stress this. I'm not telling you that your bank account is going to grow because of this or that the car you've been dreaming of is going to be magically delivered to you later in the week. And I'm not telling you that the people you don't like at work aren't going to be there and that you're going to get promoted. I'm not saying anything like that. What I'm telling you is a reorientation of your life makes those things secondary to the greatness and faithfulness of God now. The hope of the gospel now. Only when you receive it. Let me close with this story. <clears throat> Last week, I, I, I'm an imperfect parent. Let me just start with that. And one of my great challenges in this season of life is trying to, uh, trying to, to parent in a way that doesn't unleash, doesn't come from a place of anger, <laughs> right, at disobedient children, but that also comes from a shepherding place that, that, that enables them to be who they are, to be fallen, to be imperfect, but trying to move them in the right way. Right, so let me just say that I'm totally imperfect before I talk about my son. There was a moment we were, our kids had, had organized this, uh, we have a Wii at home. Uh, there's, a, there's an Olympic game for the Wii, and so we we're going to have a family Olympics night on the Wii. And Rach and I and Rach created a, an Olympic Olympian me character who was in. We were all playing it, and uh, one of my son, my younger son Tyler, in a moment of frustration, acted out against his brother. And then, as I began to try to deal with him, th- through a massive tantrum, as any child often does, right? And so I had told him through all of this. Hey, we, had a, we had a special thing planned the night. We were going to have a sleepover. I like to do this with my boys. We get the sleeping bags out, and, and Rach gets to sleep a good night through. And, and myself and the boys, we sleep downstairs in the sleeping bag. And I had told him, Ty, if this behavior continues, you're not going to be able to participate tonight. And trying to live into the reality of my statements, as he continued to push the line, I had to say to him, Ty, I'm sorry. You're not going to be able to participate with us tonight. And he burst into tears. And he, he was tormented by it. And I was doing everything, I'm not a very emotional person, but I was doing everything I could to not just weep as my heart was broken. I didn't want to do this. As he wrestled through the reality of it, and he went up to his bed to go to sleep by himself, and Jackson was preparing for a sleepover with me downstairs. He struggled to deal with it, struggled to deal with it. And all in my mind, I continued to think was, Tyler, if you would just come to me, and if you would apologize, and if you would mean it, we could deal with all of this, and you could be part of what we're doing tonight. But he didn't. And he wouldn't. And I kept dwelling on the thought, if you would only, and it was breaking my heart, and breaking my heart, and breaking my heart, and I would go to him and I would try to lead him into it. I'd give him statements that would try to lead him into it and he wouldn't do it. Nothing I would do could convince him to do it. And finally, as he was getting tucked into bed, I came up and put my arm around him and I said, Ty, don't you have anything you want to say to me? And then as he finally apologized and we began to have reconciliation and I was able to scoop him out of his bed and carry him down to the sleepover, a very real picture came into my mind. This is the heart of God for his people, isn't it? He is so desperate 
for us to come to him in repentance and faith. And he's doing everything to try to lead us in that way. But he can't force us to, because when he forces us to do it, it's not genuine. Isn't it? I could have told him, Ty, just tell me you're sorry and it'll be okay. But then he just says it to deal with the situation, not to really mean it. This is the heart of God. This is the story of faith. God is desperate. He is a dad that just wants to have a sleepover and just wants everything to be perfect. And everything he's doing to try to remind us if you would just come to me in faith, you could have life now and in the future. And yet, in the stubbornness of our heart, we persist in our own way, trying to insist that what we did wasn't as bad as it is, trying to insist that there's a way we can work ourselves out of it, trying to blame someone else rather than just coming on our knees to the kind and patient judge and saying, I can't. I was wrong. Will you? And we find a God who scoops us out of the top bunk, grabs our pillow, embraces us tight, and carries us down to an eternal sleepover that starts now. (laughs) There is no excuse for hopelessness in this life. I know circumstances are dire. But even in the midst of them, the gospel announces to you now a hope that is certain and assured. And you need look no farther than an empty tomb to be certain that everything that God has promised is assured. Are you Adam? Or are you in Jesus? Are you hopeless? Or is there hope? Is your life characterized by death and dead ends? By life. Now. Let me pray with you.